Down along the creek I remember something Heard the heron hurried away First the breach that last Sunday Low moon down the yellow road I remember something That he wasn't easy Nor that he didn't in my vines And certainly this evening And it's now is not the time Toiling with your blood I remember something And being rushing, kissing on a night Second to last Finding both your hands A second sun came past the glass And oh, I know it felt bad I had you in my grasp Oh, then how are we gonna cry? And welcome to the Savage Beast Podcast. I'm Joe Gallagher. With me, as always, Bonivere's branding consultant, Paul McLeod. Uh, Iver actually fired me uh, because I showed up to a meeting with no pants whatsoever on. But um, up until then, yes, I was his branding consultant. Was he disappointed that... Um, not that you weren't wearing pants, but that you were not tattooed with all the names of his songs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Prison Break style? Uh, yes. Or or, or, or uh, uh, What's-His-Face from um, uh, Memento, uh, so I could study the, the ideas at all times and learn what they actually mean. Yeah, well, I hear, I mean, I think Bon Iver expects that um, all of his employees will eventually uh, be abducted by um, time demons and brought to another dimension uh, where they will be forced, where they will need to recreate all of his music from scratch and find the Bon Iver of that dimension. Uh, how, how would that sound any different from 22 a million? I don't know, but I I, I just I see sort of this um, version of the Jet Jet Li movie, the one where eventually all the Bonavers kind of come together, and instead of fighting, they have some sort of cosmic I, uh, uh, collision. That is a that is a, a reference that goes way over my head. I'm afraid I have not seen Jet Li's The One. I have. I don't know why. Or how, but uh, I believe I saw it for our mutual friend TJ's birthday party. Oh, nice. Um, but that was, uh, it was long ago <laughs> um, in a multiverse far, far away. Uh, okay. Yeah. Bon- so, go ahead. Bon Iver. Yeah, we played that because we're going to talk about it. Yes, that song was called 715 dash. C R Epsilon Epsilon K S. Unless I'm mistaken, those are sigmas, even though they look like E's. Oh yeah, they're sigmas. Well, there you go. <laughs> fooled Bonavair, fooled me. <laughs> you gotta you gotta be up on your Greek alphabets to be on the Savage Beast podcast. Dr. McClure is rolling over in his grave right now. 
Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I, uh, every song. So, Bon Iver has a new album. Uh-huh. It's called 22, a Million. And it's got 10 songs, and they all have strange names, most of them with an odd symbol, um, including one that seems to include uh, four or five underscores, um, one that includes a couple diamonds, and uh, one that is called 666 Upside Down Lowercase T. <laughs> oh, I mistook that for an, for an arrow pointing down at first, but you're correct. That is uh, a T that's upside down. Which um, I'm gonna have to reinterpret that song from scratch now that I know that. Yes, there's a, there's a lot of explication that needs to take place here. I I could have missed the entire point of it, really. Um, Paul, what yeah. this album has been hyped. Bon Iver had a press conference to introduce it uh, <laughs> when news first came out. Um, uh, is it good? Yes. I think it's good. Um, I uh, have listened to this album a couple times now, and uh, it's it's super weird. I have to give it credit for. Um, I really can't think of anything that's that's like this. Most albums you hear, even the ones you like a lot, you're like, "Oh, this is uh, '90s influenced heavy fuzz grunge rock or whatever." Mm-hmm. Um, even even weird uh, albums that are trying to do something new, usually you can pick a few antecedents and put it together. This is just, um, I mean, obviously uh, the heavily processed vocals thing is uh, hardly new, hardly even out of fashion. Um, in fact, it is in fashion. Um, but uh, just leaning on that so hard um, where... Uh, that's really the foremost musical element most of the time is his voice being vocoded um, all the way to to hell or heaven, uh, depending on your perspective and back. And uh, then there will be some, you know, uh, pretty stuff that uh, is more reminiscent of his past work with, uh, I mean, not that he didn't use processed vocals before, but, um, you know, you've got sort of pretty acoustic guitar arrangements and, um sort of uh i how would i describe the horns sort of uh uh melancholy f- improvisational jazz horns a little bit maybe i would say um and uh the combo is is really i, I mean even those elements are not super common uh and certainly not used this way and so um as far as the effect they produce uh it's it's impressive how well he's able to sort of evoke the f- uh the sense of um indulging in a really melancholy reverie about um your past or your memories or just the nature of life um with a with a really unique uh palette so um that kind of thing uh perhaps because i give uh uh Things that try to be self-consciously innovative, uh, a lot of bonus points, uh, really works for me. How do you feel about it, Joe? He does like to get a, get down there in the melancholy and really roll around in it. Uh-huh. Uh, just kind of, you know, and then he, he kind of comes in. 
and he's just filthy with melancholy. <laughs> uh, and then he shakes it off on you. And at first you're like, no. And then you're like, oh, this is fun. Um, uh, so my uh, reaction to this album is uh, uh, pretty much along the same lines of yours. Uh, I think that it's beautiful and totally of the now. Um, I also wrote that, you know, the previous eras aren't bleeding in here. Like so many of the other albums we've liked this year. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a rock album that uses, uh, indie rock album that uses, you know, the palette of 2016, not 1992, not 1974, um and that but like a weird subset of the current palette i would say it does well i mean he he takes um things like the the vocoder and mm-hmm. uh he in exercises control you know such mastery and control of it as an instrument and he does that mm-hmm. with i think with you know it seems to me i'm not sure that he's sampling his own guitar playing and and he is you know at least manipulating um you know yeah. sounds and and shorter bits to like reform songs and just doing that not as a gimmick not you know there's none of these instances where um uh you feel like he's just injected a, a beat for no reason you know to make mm-hmm. it cool um uh you know i, I don't want to pick on like James Blake who I like but I I do think that this is you know like next level you know interesting introspective um uh just in terms of performance and execution um and uh there's definitely his collaborations with Kanye have rubbed off on him (laughs) For sure, um, there is a there is still a lot of ego in this, but it it works. I mean, I thought that you know he was a bit unjustified in his previous album with his mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, emo strut. I don't know what what <laughs> you want to the character of his strut, but he has it. Uh, but here he's it's it's well earned. I am. Um, uh, you know, I I, I definitely was not expecting to like this album. I'm on record as having thought that he was declining a bit from his early um, uh, innovative folk of his first mm-hmm. album, and this really impressed me. Uh, I was I I'm really I've listened to it a few times, and I'm looking forward to listening to it again. There's a lot in here. There's a lot in those layers uh, yeah. to get into. Yeah, um, what you said, again, we pretty much agree. Uh, I liked Bon Iver more than you did before this. Right. And, uh, uh, but it's still, you know, surprising. Um, I am impressed that all three, he has three, like, official albums. Am I right in that yes. count? Yes, yes. Yeah, and they're, I mean, uh, props to him. They're all super different from each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which, again, is something that uh, I enjoy. Um I mean, to me, it's like he's trying to do some of the same things as a normal singer-songwriter sad white guy album would do, like he did on his first album. Yep. But just making it, just being able to find uh, a palette, like, like we've been saying, that is both 
of the now, like you said, but also so weird. I mean, you know, rappers do processed vocals all the time, but uh, never is the effect this um, off-putting. Like if you listen to, say, Future, uh, a frequent whipping boy for us, uh, practically all his lyrics are vocoded, usually not as heavily as this, but it feels more like I'm doing this so that I sound... Uh, different from everybody else while I'm doing something that kind of everybody else is doing. But this, um, maybe just because he turns up the weirdness to such a high level. Um, and sometimes it descends into just sort of weird sounds for their own sake, uh, which are not my favorite parts of the album. But um, uh, for the most part, like on the track we just played, uh, it's, it's a powerful effect um, that he can just be uh, singing into a microphone, throwing it through a vocoder, and then uh, basically mixing it well, and it um, it's awesome. Uh, I I reminded um, with his mixing and his collage effect of um, a band, or I guess it might be better called a group called the Books. Um, I don't uh, I don't know if you listen to them, Paul. Yeah, uh, they had uh, they had that album that was sort of like thought for uh, thought for food. Yeah, and easygoing uh sort of you know mid 2000s uh dance thoughtful dance music with a bunch of really off the wall samples put on top of it yes yes definitely but it wasn't even you know that and and lemon of pink i mean i'm not sure it was quite so danceable as it was very intellectual sampling i I meant it was dance music in the sense that it's electronic yes yeah electronic music definitely um just that they built a lot of they would take a uh, very normal um, found sound and um, build a lot of tension into it. And I think when he, when he's using those elements you're talking about, um, especially the vocoder, and he's just, he's able to, and a lot of the things that singer-songwriters normally do and through his production and his sense of, um, you know, timing he's able to inject a level of um tension and release that you just don't find in your you know in your typical uh ryan adams song much Mm -hmm. much love to ryan adams (laughs) uh you can you can send all the love you want to ryan adams um i hope i hope that he uh can't jerk off with his broken hand to use a famous insult from pitchfork wow there you go yeah that's Uh, such a deep cut we should just cut that because nobody's gonna know what i'm talking about (laughs) that's okay that is okay those are that's fine here um i would like to retract uh the uh sentiment that uh future (laughs) that future is a is our whipping boy just given the racial implications at the actual meaning of whipping (laughs) just Okay, fair. I, I think Whipping Boy has entered the lexicon as just a stock metaphor, but you're right. I should have been aware of that. Um, it's totally not what I meant, and no. I apologize for accidentally doing that. I think it's actually my fault for immediately picturing the literal meaning of that. Yeah, which is yeah to me it's almost a like... A perversion the, upon my part. <laughs> the... The metaphorical version is the only meaning that occurs to me when I use that term. I'm yes. sorry. I'm sorry. No apology I'm, necessary. I'm, I'm trying to remove it. Uh, <laughs> to quote Drill. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, drill jokes, deep cuts of Pitchfork. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> and Bon Iver. This is a podcast of its time, Joe. It is. It is. We do not reach back. No. Uh, um, but actually, let's reach back and talk about uh, somebody the Nobel Prize Committee reached back for. Uh, you mean Nobel laureate Bob Dylan? That guy. Uh, can we play? Can we play a song? Yeah, pick one for us. Uh, let's let's go with Desolation Row. All right, all fifty minutes of it. Yep. Coming right up. Yep. They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Here comes the blind commissioner. They've got him in a trance. One hand is tied to the tightrope walker. The other is in his pants. And the riot squad, they're restless. They need somewhere to go. There's Lady and I look out tonight from Desolation Road. That was Bob Dylan playing uh, an epic of American folk music entitled Desolation Row. I like the way you used your uh, NPR voice for that. I was about to say, welcome back to uh, Public Radio International's uh, uh, Savage Bestiary (laughs) with Joe Gallagher, Paul McLeod. Savage Bestiary. And and the bloodied corpse of Ira Glass. (laughs) It's uh, it really helps put me in the mood to be sitting next to that. <laughs> I can't. I really. I could get. I could go on. Um, if you want to see me angry, uh, suggest that Ira Glass would someday win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, the Nobel Prize for excellence in bourgeoisie. I once saw Ira Glass hosted event. Uh, about an author, a beloved author who had recently died. And Ira Glass was masterful in how he made this event entirely about Ira Glass. I mean, it was stunning. <laughs> um, I, I, he, he's the This American Life guy, right? Yes, he is. I have never watched or listened to that. So, um, um, that's, to, no shade against it. I just haven't done that. So, yeah. Am I missing out? Well, that's a complex question. I should not get into my re- a review of This American Life um, <laughs> when we're about to talk about Bob Dylan, because I do not want to associate uh, these two things. Okay. Um, whether Whatever your opinion of Bob Dylan, he is certainly more important than that's true. This American that's true. Life. Um, but I will maintain my NPR voice for this segment of Savage Beast. <laughs> Uh, so Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize uh, in literature. Uh, little known fact, I'm actually kind of, uh, I have a strange obsession with the Nobel Prize in literature. Uh, I'm in on a lifelong quest to uh, read a book by every person who has won it. 
Um, I was reading only books by Nobel laureates for a little while and kind of got saturated. So I'm taking a uh, several years long break before diving back into it. There are a hundred of them. And I, when I lived on the East coast, I actually used to get up, set my alarm, uh, early in the morning to see it announced, um, because they live stream it and some guy comes out and speaks uh, very rapidly in Norwegian and then says one name that everyone, all the us, the international press can understand and they all gasp. <laughs> it's quite fun. Um, and it's nice to have like one moment of drama uh, a, per year uh, surrounding the literary arts. Uh, uh, so are you going to read a book by Bob Dylan now, Joe? Well, he does have a famously very bad book of poetry. That's um, what you're reading then. <laughs> yes, called uh, Tarantula, um, which I know because it was compared to um, um, Billy Corgan's uh, Blinking with Fists as <laughs> a um, pretentious mess of a book. <laughs> Uh, pretentious mess of of amateur verse. Um, nice. So um, yeah. to end Have my you- to end my little prelude, um, this is the first time in over twenty years that an American has won the Nobel Prize in Literature um, after the committee has said several um, derogatory things about modern American literature. Um, uh-huh. The last person. To win was Toni Morrison, uh, which another person who's I won't I won't get into my thoughts on Toni Morrison, um, <laughs> but uh, it is a um, huge change that they uh, recognize both an American and someone who was not in need of. Um, elevation in their career Um, really for at least a decade it's all been authors who um were never um at the top level of international renown or had kind of uh slipped from it a bit so i thought um, alice monroe was pretty well known maybe i'm wrong that's true i you know there's some of these um i could talk about this for a while some of these awards (laughs) uh um uh, like uh, Harold Pinter, um, it's mm-hmm. more that yes, they're recognized, but at the end of their career slash lives, they need that final enshrinement in ah. you know the pantheon. So um, some of them, some of them end up uh, in that category. Um, and Bob Dylan is not in need of that. Um, no. And in fact, I think as of right now, he still has not returned the Nobel committee's calls. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool i like that yeah yeah uh fantastic he even played a concert that night that it was announced and made no reference to it (laughs) i did not know that that's also she's fantastic um so uh paul bob dylan won the nobel or nobel prize in literature where do we want to start with this do we want to start with bob dylan do we want to start with our songs literature um well, uh, so this became a topic when uh, I retweeted somebody from uh, on our account. I t- retweeted somebody uh, saying, um, I don't care about Bob Dylan. You had a, a, a pithy response um, uh, via another retweet. But Indeed. I realized that tweet didn't really represent my views. 
because um, what I really don't care about is Nobel Prizes. There you go. Um, <laughs> not actually, if there's any prize I do care about, the Nobel Prize in literature is is pretty cool. Generally, I'm against prizes in art and competitions in art. Hmm. Um, not only because most of them, like the Oscars and the Emmys and the Grammys, are fucking terrible, but uh, also because I think it's a bad idea to begin with. Um, uh, this is sort of a tangent, but basically... Joe, have you ever seen um, a figure skating performance that you considered really great art in the Olympics? Uh, great art? Mm, no. no. No, I have not. And uh, I think... Beautiful, I think, yes. Great art, in no. A, in a, yeah, there can, there's certainly wonderful technique, obviously. These people work like slaves, that might be problematic too to say that to, to no no that's just true that's just true <laughs> yeah um and there's there's certainly uh you know elegance and form but to my mind the fact that they have attempted to apply objective standards of what is the best figure skater or vi- best figure skating performance um that inherently corrupts the art made to win that prize um Imagine if there were a an Olympic event for um, the best uh, guitar song every year, all right? So it would actually be even more rigid than the stupid Grammys, which actually aren't rigid. Um, but you would have you would have things like you would get so many points for having uh, a good chorus and hitting certain notes in the chorus, and you would have so many points for having a guitar solo, and you'd have to do this certain things for it to qualify as a guitar solo. Oh, God. So, <laughs> that's how they do the Olympic ice skating Yes, yes. This is a hellscape uh, that you are describing. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it actively sucks out some of the most important elements of creativity and, and experimentation that make so much art really good. So um, that's generally why I think prizes... T- they do more to homogenize. Just look at the Oscar yeah. winners, usually. Yeah, and even to, yeah, uh, encourage creativity. And I, you know, I'm going to support that point by saying that even though the the Nobel Prize is a lifetime achievement award, having yeah. read um, and that's f- why it's better. Yeah, it is better. But having read a few dozen and um, realizing that they uh, award a sort of um, modern, you know, something on on modern slightly tipped towards postmodern uh existential novel of um navel gazing and dread um <laughs> over and over again that's that's you you be i began to see that that homogenization uh is true um even across decades mm-hmm. um that what is regarded as literature um the best literature uh certainly at least starting in the 20th century um became uh, maybe you know as narrow in some ways as figure skating only with the opportunity for you know very different um Mm -hmm. adornments but uh the the technical requirements um might be nearly as strict yeah um I, I can I would suggest if you haven't done so already, uh, one no, one Nobel Prize winner I might have on you is uh, 1928's winner Sigrid Unset, mm-hmm. with her uh, who won for her uh, pr- principally for her 
uh, thousand page three part novel, uh, Kristen Laverne's daughter and her, uh, I forget what the other one was. It was a four part historical novel, even longer. I think I haven't read that one, but, um, uh, that might give you a little bit of a different flavor, especially since it's set in the 1300s in Norway. Um, and, uh, it's awesome. Uh, if almost sort of soapy in its uh, structure. Nice. Um, there are a few of those uh, exceptions um, uh, that uh, populate the list, um, uh, including a few historians um, and uh, what the most notably unfortunate of which was her Winston Churchill. <laughs> Um, I feel like he, he and Hemingway are the most delighted in Dylan's uh, award in that if there is a special place in the afterlife where a special club, uh, they will be most appreciative of his arrival. Well, now, actually, what do you mean by that? I'm not sure I get your, your thrust there. Um, Why does Hemingway like Dylan? That's a good question. I don't know. That just seems it's that's a it's, that's a it, it's an instinctive reaction, mainly because okay. he's right next to Churchill on the list. Oh, okay. um, but uh, they may not be. I don't know. Let's not do. I won't get distracted. We'll 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 chalk that up to a completely random uh, comment by me. Um, uh, anyway. Um... I'll think about that. I'll think of what your subconscious was that, what connections they drew between Hemingway and Dylan. Was that three part um uh not historical novel you read uh good? Yeah, it was awesome. Okay. <laughs> it's actually so I mean, like I said, it's sort of soapy in that it's like it's like just a really long family drama that follows one woman from childhood to death. Um and uh I don't know if you if if you get your um, if you get your rocks off to uh, uh, just a woman dealing with with family shit that's well rendered, then uh, I recommend this. Outstanding. Um, yeah. Uh, and I would say that um, uh, if you want the best Nobel Prize winners, I've mm-hmm. found uh, it's usually the ones that wrote something in Spanish. Um, uh, they're yeah. just all pretty much one level above when they, when they go for the, it, you know, when they're the high literature of Spain, uh, <laughs> maybe the best of any. All right. I'm looking yeah. at the list on Wikipedia. France is the runaway number one. With yes. 16 winners. A lot of Frenchies. Um, okay. So Bobby D mm-hmm. he won the Nobel literature, um, I have to say that my reaction was um, the part of me that cares about this prize um, was delighted that he won. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the um, to the extent that um, music needs this validation, which may not be at all, but to the extent that it does, uh, I think it's delightful that, um, you know, uh, music, uh, is elevated as a storytelling craft, um, next to, um, next to theater, next to, um, you know, 
uh, poetry. Um, I, I think it's it's equal as a, a place for telling compelling stories um, in its own manner. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, and to make that declaration by celebrating uh, a freak and weirdo <laughs> who worked for his own purpose uh, without consideration of um, the meaning anyone else would take from it is uh, uh, delightful. Makes me happy. Yeah. Um, certainly I approve of uh, uh, expanding the list of uh, media covered. There's no particular reason we should have. I mean, the Nobel Prize, is that the most prestigious prize there is? Probably. Uh, yeah. It's, I can't it's, think of a better one off the top of It matters of my head. enough that like China and Russia have at times forbidden winners for, to going to get it. And I, I feel like <laughs> in both like literature and, and peace, and I, I feel like there's no other prize that that applies to. All right. So that being the case, um, it does seem weird that it would be just for written words. So um, on the other hand, if Bob Dylan didn't write it, win it for the words he wrote, then I can't fathom why he would have because I find his music undistinguished. But there you go. <laughs> um, otherwise, uh, certainly um, uh, expanding the scope makes sense to me. There was actually a, a guy I follow on Twitter, Chris Morgan, at CR underscore Morgan, I think, uh-huh. uh, dredged up a Camille LaPaglia quote from 1990 where she basically predicted that this uh, needed to happen for the prize and uh here we are interesting i yeah. like cool her her point was that it seemed sort of you know close-minded and provincial to stick with just uh the other things we've been talking about so um eventually eventually the 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 prize committee came around to her point of view i guess got it so um yeah, and I, I think that it's it's not surprising that it, in the end it's not too surprising that they did this, and for some reason people have been predicting it for years like that, like he's oh, been really? on the odds sheet um, since people actually fucking bet on this. <laughs> they bet on <laughs> everything, um, and he's been um, you know one of the favorites just because he's most popular, you know, um, yeah. for a long time. So it hasn't been unexpected. Um, Do you have any idea how the process works? It just occurred to me. I don't know anything except that it's it involves Norsemen. Yeah, um, there's a committee of them, and they uh, read a lot of books, and it's kind of an insular process where um, I, I, I have forgotten the exact details, but the people on this committee um, bring the books, um, and uh, uh, they have you know um, an internal uh, debate and system where they nominate and select and it has caused controversy because at one time they gave the award to simultaneously to two members of the committee <laughs> nice which is awesome it's like it's like picking a pope you somebody in the room is actually going to be the pope. yes yes um, exactly i like to imagine that there's some guy who's been bringing in you know everybody else has got their dog-eared books of borgias or whatever uh but there's some guy who's been bringing in his dylan uh, vinyl LPs since like 1980 and like conspicuously setting them out to be like, Hey guys, I'm uh I'm much cooler than you thinking outside the box here. And the rest of them just sort of hated him for a long time. But finally most of those guys died and he convinced the younger ones to go along with it. Yes. I like that. I like it. 
Um, so Paul, let, let's, um, I, I have a few more things to say about Bob Dylan, but what, what do you tell give me your, uh, uh, hot take on Bob Dylan's music. Okay. <laughs> I'll do that. And then you can say, uh, your, your, uh, you can say whatever you want in response. Okay. Um, <laughs> so as I alluded to, um, I don't hate Bob Dylan. I'm not here to say Bob Dylan is trash or anything. Right. Although I do have a really funny article that i think makes a pretty good case that he's trashed by somebody else uh one crispin sartwell i actually quoted from that a long time ago in one of these episodes um but anyway um so like i said musically uh you sent me five tracks to listen to yes. to try to convince me of the best of bob dylan um because i wanted to be sure mm-hmm. i was working from that um and you know, musically, it's just to me, it's a sort of like slightly catchy background uh, acoustic folksy stuff that I wouldn't really be very interested in listening to by itself. Um, that could just be my taste, but I mean, like, um, I don't know. Also, his harmonica playing is terrible. I don't <laughs> understand why people like that. Um, so, anyway, then uh, he's always been most well known, though, for his lyrics. But here, uh, I just don't think he's actually that good at writing lyrics. My my beef is basically that it's sort of like image salad. Like he'll take you can get the he'll he'll find a theme that the song is about. Um and for instance Desolation Row is sort of about uh you know sympathizing with the underdogs and the losers against the forces of conformity and um uh st- standardization which is would you say that's roughly how you read it? Uh, yes. And to the extent that I read it at all. Yes. Yeah. But uh, okay. right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you can usually get the theme out, but the way he evokes it and describes it is he, he did learn well the lesson to use images, use metaphors and so forth. But rather than uh, picking one and developing it skillfully over the course of a song, it's just, uh, a real hodgepodge of them thrown all together, usually with no connecting thread whatsoever. And I, I looked through the lyrics to several songs, uh, trying to, having noticed this, I looked through the lyrics of a bunch of these songs, trying to uh, confirm or disconfirm that notion. I then went back to that Crispin Sartwell article I just referenced, and that was actually his chief complaint too. I'd forgotten that, I think. So um, it was interesting that we came to the same conclusion. But just as an example, uh, you sent Shelter from the Storm as one of your songs. Yes, probably the one I feel the least strongly about, but okay. continue. Well, the point w- applies to pretty much all the songs. Okay. Uh, um, so that is a song that seems to be about the experience of, you know, being down and out, uh, having rough times, and then, um, you know, finding uh, a measure of uh, solace um, in at least a metaphorical woman. Maybe uh, he didn't mean that to be taken literally. It doesn't really matter for the point I'm about to be taken, uh, about to make. Anyway, so like I said, uh, uh, one of the main themes is uh, uh, troubled times, uh, bad feelings, and so forth. So here's a list of images and metaphors I pulled out of the lyrics. Oh, this um, is going to be good. <laughs> uh, used to evoke that those bad feelings. So we've got uh, toil and blood, blackness, mud, Wilderness, creature void of form, steel-eyed death, men fighting to be warm, crown of thorns, a wall between us, signals crossed, a deputy walking on hard nails and a preacher riding a mount, although I'm not exactly sure what those are supposed to mean anyway. 
one-eyed a one-eyed undertaker blowing a feudal horn newborn babies wailing like a morning dove old men with broken teeth uh, people gambling for his clothes a lethal dose instead of salvation and living in a foreign country to me this is like he's uh just sort of writing lyrics uh and thinking of the first image that it seems like he's just thinking of the first image that comes to mind and not uh with the first details that come to mind and not really working on it beyond that to um form a more cohesive uh uh just you know theme or anything um now by contrast somebody i who I think sort of does the opposite in a totally different medium is like somebody like John Donne, who's famous for his extended metaphors where he really uh, finds all the depths he can in a particular image. And, or maybe he has two or three that he's working together, but still they're, they're well-developed and they keep on going. Um, or even more modern, somebody like T.S. Eliot. Um, that to me is what mm. I look for in sort of poetry and lyrics. And I find it totally lacking in Bob Dylan. So that's really my chief complaint with him as a writer. Well, I think it's it's interesting that um, we uh, the chief complaint with him for you and for many others is you know in fact literary. But mm-hmm. you bring up the comparison to poets, and I I don't think that that um, criticism necessarily applies because of course I mean I feel the same thing when I go to you know genius.com and I'm just reading the lyrics you know I find none of the emotion and that I find when listening to Desolation Row and Mm -hmm. um, also get that uh, kind of uncomfortable sense of um, you know uh, that it's lacking in depth um, that it's a bit childish. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, immature, juvenile, immature, juvenile, juvenile. Yeah, there we go. Um, uh, and that it's only when those words are, are paired with the songs and paired particularly with his voice. And you really do get that idea of, um, free form association that this song is you know an improvisation of a traveling uh singer you know and and the way that you know you can just open up one of these albums and feel like you just sat down and and you're listening to someone make up this fun and and (laughs) surprisingly devastatingly moving song on the spot that that Uh sort of emotional uh, connection that you get immediately um, is what brings those words to life. And it's a little like going back and explicating, you know, a very compelling freestyle that you just uh-huh. heard. You're like, oh, well, you know, rhyming uh, no with blow and so uh, is really kind of dumb. I can't really explain <laughs> why I liked it so much when I heard it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I don't think that that um, it's not necessarily doesn't necessarily excuse the entire problem to think of it that way. Um, but um, and I would be remiss to represent myself as um, a true Dylan Stan. Um, some of these songs I sent you, um, have at times been, you know, moved through my, um, uh, 
I've my my orbits as favorite songs, but I'm not a, a devotee. I don't really know much beyond you know uh, mm-hmm. ten ten or twenty songs. Um, uh, so, um, I think that uh, you know I was listening to Desolation Row, and um uh afterwards um kind of 1979 came on and the shuffle mm-hmm. and i just it seemed immediately obvious that the sort of you know those um imagistic you know uh sort of uh, trying to think of a word for the for this you know it's it's a it's like a metaphor without an anchor that like Billy uses in that song are mm. just completely rooted in what Bob Dylan does and that probably he is maybe you know solely responsible for bringing that kind of um um poetry into rock because of course he was sort of doing that at the same time that the Beatles were, you know, um, freely breeding rock and pop music together. Um, and, uh, and this, this, what I'm talking about right now, I really feel like Bob Dylan cause I'm just kind of free associating <laughs> these various ideas as I, uh, tumble on. Um, but, um, the whole point is that like, I, I guess that, Bob Dylan, it's like the things that you can complain about, which is that he seems to be um, kind of a haphazard lyricist and sloppy musician um, are like what is makes him amazing. And there's just no way to fully reconcile um, those two facts. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so a few things to, to respond to. Yeah. Um, uh First of all, his voice is terrible. I'm not the only person who thinks that. But. Right. Well, that I just I just disagree with that. I think that okay. that's yeah. I can see why it would hold charms for some people, but I I feel like if you want that sort of rough, smoky voice thing, there there are a lot of uh, uh, people who do that better just as a vocalist. But anyway, um, I uh, did he did he actually improvise these songs uh, or the lyrics to them or? Do we even know? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what his yeah. process is. I mean, I don't think he improvises them as he's singing, but um, yeah. I, f- I feel he may write them. Uh, right before I do he know he them. writes them quite quickly, and there is little to no revision. Yeah, um, that's what it sort of feels like. Um, yeah, I guess to me the the fact that his process is shoddy doesn't produce doesn't excuse the shoddy results for me. Um, but. Uh, it is interesting. This is the most interesting thing I think uh, about what you just said. Uh, I too thought of the Billy Corgan connection. Hmm. Um, perhaps that isn't too surprising, uh, given <laughs> that we connect everything to Billy Corgan. <laughs> yeah, it's actually but the least surprising <laughs> thing. Still, this is a specific comparison, a fairly specific point that uh, I do see some of that in Billy Corgan, although. When you brought up 1979, I looked up the lyrics right now, and I actually think there is a much more cohesive like scene to the lyrics to 1979. Like, I do feel like I'm sort of uh, wandering the streets of a mid-sized town in the dusk as the lights come on in the city or something. True. Anyway, um, uh, 
I would say that that actually is a fair criticism of Billy a lot of times. Uh, a lot of his lyrics are frequently just sort of like um, largely cryptic, sort of evocative things that you don't really know what he's talking about specifically sometimes, and it's just about the feelings they bring you. But on the other hand, the music behind those lyrics is fucking incredible when you're listening to the Smashing Pumpkins, mm. which I personally just don't really feel listening to Bob Dylan. So uh, to me, it's just like, yeah, I uh, came up with a little guitar lick. Um, you know, some sometimes it's interesting, like uh, the song, the Nico one you sent. Uh, yes. The name you. Um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it with I'll mine. keep it with mine. Thank you. Yeah. So maybe it's just that it's played by the Velvet Underground. Um, but uh, I actually, you know, like the, I thought the chord progression was sort of interesting in that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, actually, if we're using that as this written by Bob Dylan as the standard for a Bob Dylan song, the greatest Bob Dylan song, in my opinion, is, of course, uh, uh, the Jimi Hendrix one. Um, All Along the Watchtower. All Along the Watchtower. Yes. Yeah, which is fucking awesome. It is. Um, <laughs> But again, that's mostly because of Jimi Hendrix, if you ask me. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think we've uh, identified why we feel differently about him, and um, we invite you, dear reader, to find if you can make sense of uh, all the pot in Bob Dylan's mind in 1965. Definitely something interesting to explore here about you know how you know Bob Dylan is maybe. Um, he's so closely associated with rock and roll, but he's also, you know, just as much or more a folk singer and just, um, how people, how those interests sometimes align more closely, uh, in some, uh, rock devotees than others. Um, you know, I think, I think that conflation of him with rock is maybe more of a retrospective confusion than anything. I, my sense is that at the time, you know, folk music was its whole own semi-separate thing. Obviously, there were folk rock crossovers, but it was like hip hop and rock now, or something. You know, where there's this one thing going on, and there's also this other thing going on. And then, in retrospect, uh, as we move away from that era, we tend to think of we tend to take all the big luminaries and mash them together as '60s, you know, pop music uh, luminaries and. Uh, that's as far as we think about it just off the cuff anyway um what last bob dylan story um probably one of the the my first real uh exposure to him as a music fan and something that really set my opinion on him is that uh uh i think my dad had one of the his live um you know there's there's endless um live cds of bob dylan and there's a bootleg series um and my dad had the concert that was one of the first times that he uh, went electric um which is very controversial mm-hmm. because of course he was you know the the god of folk music and him getting up there right. with electric rock band was a betrayal um and so for the last i think the last track of this album he's up there he's been playing this song these songs electric for the first time people have are like booing and this one (laughs) this one dude just just like screams judas at him and bob dylan's (laughs) like you're a liar and then they start playing uh like a rolling stone uh really loud um 
which is excellent. Um, so it may be that he's kind of confused with rock and roll because he himself is is a rock star more than yeah. a folk singer, even though his music is um, uh, f- probably closer to folk. Yeah, that's part of the, what I was referring to is that that there was such a controversy when he went rock. Yes, like that. I mean, it'd be like if uh, I don't know if uh, <laughs> there are many examples of this now, but you know. If uh, if Jay Z were to release a rock album, people would call him Judas. <laughs> <laughs> well, it I would guess, also be yeah. really bad. Yes, um, I, I feel like he would have to release something that was more popular than rap. So that's um, true. It would have to be yeah. EDM. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> random question. I just thought of if not Bob Dylan, which uh, which popular lyricist should win the Nobel Prize in literature? Ooh. Uh, hmm. I should. Who is my favorite lyricist? It's the answer is not going to be anybody with enough stature to actually win the Nobel Prize in literature. Right. Although I guess you're saying that most of them are more yeah. obscure. So um, let's say that the Nobel this becomes a normal thing for the Nobel Prize. We can do musicians now, and now they don't feel like it. You know, they probably did have to break the ice with somebody who's just a huge international megastar for half a century. Right. Um, so that makes sense, but let's say they can scale it back in the future. I would hope they would pick someone like Joanna Newsom. Yeah. Um, yeah. Her and her and I mean, Sufjan sprung to mind immediately. Same for me. Yeah. Uh, there are probably others I could think of, but those, uh, perhaps just cause we've talked about them some recently. Those are the two that spring to mind as my favorite lyricists, uh, in the music I love. Yeah. It's hard to say that Bob Dylan is necessarily better than, is if Bob Dylan is the standard, I mean, as much as his lyrics defined a certain category, I mean, I'm not sure I could say that they're so much better than like, you know, like Stephen Malkmus's lyrics for Pavement or just other like weird singer. There's a lot mm-hmm. that I think you could begin to consider. Frank uh, Black. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 and I should say, I hope they take this as an excuse to reward people for making music not because of its lyrics. Um, I don't see why they shouldn't pick yeah. the best actual just musicians. Um, uh, seems like a worthy thing to reward to me. But uh, you know. Not winning the Nobel Prize for his lyrics. Uh, I would say <laughs> Rivers Cuomo. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Across the sea, that's got some good lyrics. Oh my God. <laughs> um, Eddie Vedder probably not winning uh, no. for the lyrics to Yellow Lead Better. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll find out what he was saying, and that will convince him to convince them to pick him. I think it's, that's one of the situations where he doesn't know anymore. I mean, probably. Yeah, that's uh, it's a common issue. I guess the same thing could happen with Rivers and My Name is Weepeel. Um, but yeah. Yes. River, uh, thou now Rivers supposedly knows what he's saying there and what it means and will not reveal the meaning of it. At this point, I have no faith. I would, I would be impressed. Um, yes. He'll write it on his grave. <laughs> He'll write Weepeel, 1960 to 2048 or whatever it is. Yes. Yeah. 2000. Wow. Hmm. Don't have that much more of Rivers ahead of us. Mm. Only a few more decades of <laughs> uh, bad pop songs. Indeed. Um, 
Let's move on to our final topic, um, which is uh, um, various mammal penises. Yeah. <laughs> I once saw a tapir become fully erect, um, and it was disturbing. It was long and thin and snake-like. Ah, don't recommend it. Uh, have I told the story of the time the uh, some nice old ladies came to visit my family on our ostrich ranch, and uh, they beheld the uh, Im- the <coughs> immersion of the uh, one of the male ostriches' dicks. Wow. Yeah, and we're scan- suitably scandalized. Um, especially when the milky white urine comes out of it. It's just, uh, it's, mm. it's horrifying. Re- generally, animals should wear pants. I don't see why they don't. <laughs> we all have to. Um, uh, like yeah. dogs. Yeah. They're just lying around with boners all the time. It's fucked up. Uh, yeah, I would I would be glad if my dog wore pants, but then he'd just shit in the pants. It would, yeah. It would be... It'd be disastrous. That's a good point. But yeah, uh, having um, having spent most of this podcast talking about music, we're going to talk about talking about music. Great. Wow. Yes. Um, what could be more thrilling for our uh, seven <laughs> listeners? Um, so, Paul, you got in a Twitter discussion. Um, uh-huh. If you can, <laughs> why don't you recap the Twitter discussion on air or what yeah. you vaguely recall of it? Yes, that's it's going to be the latter. Um, uh, so it involved uh, some people I enjoy greatly on my personal feed: uh, Matt Frost at Matt Frost, uh, Chris Morgan, whom I just mentioned, um, and uh, uh, Dan McCleary at Danarchy. Um, and uh, we were talking about uh, just how much difficulty people have actually discussing music when they're discussing music in reviews as opposed to discussing the political or social issues around the music. Um, or, um, you know, it's probably a lot easier to talk about the lyrics sometimes too. But this is a complaint we've had before when we talked about the Beyonce album about uh, just how much the focus tends to talk about uh, the the political message of a thing instead of describing, you know, uh, why why this is a piece of music to begin with. I mean, if all that were interesting about it were the political ideas, um, we might we might suppose that those political ideas could be better served to the public as an essay than as an album. Um, so mm. uh, if there is a good reason for them to be an album, uh, that seems like uh, the craft and quality of that music uh, is important and worthy of discussion as well to me. Um, and, you know, I don't think that Beyonce should stop uh, producing uh, sick anthems and start uh, blogging <laughs> on the Huffington Post. <laughs> so I think it is worth talking about her music. Um, also, if you know the pay scales for being beyond. Actually, I guess that's not fair. You, you'd have to compare the, the best political writer salary to the best musician's salary, which is still a gulf. But. Uh, the the random musician and the random blogger are both getting paid nothing, so the comparison isn't that stark. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. So it's just in the one of the points made in this discussion we were having on Twitter was just uh, that it is actually difficult to talk about music. Um, you know, there's the famous line: writing about music is like dancing about architecture, which 
I find a little disingenuous. I may have made this point before because I actually think you could dance well about architecture. Yeah, so. that's I I I can actually get a pretty clear view about that. But exactly, um, uh, Paul, I I have recently completed my uh, ballet, um, uh, the truth about nine eleven. <laughs> uh, it's uh, stunning, and of course, there is a whole movement about I am pay, and how he. Um, uh, was part of the grand conspiracy. <laughs> I hope. I hope that in the final movement, you depict the Freedom Tower by just slowly becoming erect. <laughs> um, actually, bring a tapir on stage to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, you know, Chris Morgan in this discussion made the point that he used to be a music reviewer and he quit partially because he became horrified at how frequently he was reusing the same adjectives over Mm. and over again, which brought to mind a point I've often thought about that um, there are certain pet adjectives that at least within the music scene that I pay attention to get reused a lot. So I actually here again, I did some research. (laughs) I, uh, I, I brainstormed some of these and then I did a Google search uh, for pages within the album reviews section of Twitter um, or actually within the album and track review section of Twitter, which hopefully are all in the same directory, so you can search just those pages. And they'll tell you how many of those pages have this word in them. Um, so uh, gossamer is a, an adjective I looked up, and uh, that appears in 121 Pitchfork reviews. Uh, gauzy appears in 276. Uh, tribal appears in 414. Throbbing in 432. Kaleidoscopic, which what... Some of these, it's like, it's just funny because they must almost become jargon terms of art because in what sense is any sound kaleidoscopic? But um, <laughs> kaleidoscopic is in 179 reviews. Twinkling is in 326. Serrated Kaleid- is Kaleidos- in 154. Kaleidoscopic, uh, it, kaleidoscopic is a, a, a poor choice of a synonym for psychedelic. That's <laughs> for sure. Anyway, Probably. continue. Loving yeah. this. And then syrupy is in 202 uh, uh, reviews. Those are the ones I thought of. And so (laughs) I actually, a lot of the times, you know, gossamer I I think of as usually being used to describe strings or something. It's also vocals uh, often. Mm -hmm. A lot of these I can kind of get what the author was getting at. And yeah, um, especially the first, I remember liking these the first time I read them. And then I just noticed them being in reviews over and over again. Was saturated in that list? I'm sure it is, but saturated. Yeah, you're, I, I didn't look it up, but it well could be. Yes. It could be. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think they actually are striking, and there is some value to the to the abstract metaphor the first time you read it. Mm-hmm. But then, I think they just become dead metaphors in reviews because uh, there are only so many of these, and every time one is discovered, it gets used by a bunch of people. Um, so, uh, yeah. I think it is it is a difficult task actually to do this. I mean, every time we try to discuss music, it's actually much easier with something like Bon Iver, where it doesn't really sound like anything else, because I can describe the ways in which it's totally distinct. But um, we definitely have our pet adjectives on here. I know that I can't for sure. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of one now, but I know that if I went back, like the top five words I use to describe music probably appear way more frequently than any others. Exactly. Yeah. And I, so, you know, I'm not really slagging the writers here. It's uh it is a difficult task. Um, 
I think uh, part of it may be that with music w- that's not so um, uh, overtly original, like uh, 22 a million, um, you know, when you're describing, again, like uh, uh, one of these grunge revival bands, like it is hard to put into words, mm-hmm. at least in a way that means anything to anybody that actually hits you, uh, why album A of that style is you know, maybe way better than album B when they're kind of using the same basic tropes. Um, it's, it, it's hard to distill the difference between like, uh, 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 give me an example. Um, let's say, uh, car seat headrest and, um, like say a symbol Z guitars album or something like that. Yeah. It's hard to describe in words why car seat headrest is like 10 times more compelling to listen to. Um, at least I without just saying 10 times more compelling. Yeah, I can say it, but I can't, it's difficult to make you feel it. Um, so a lot of times you're better off just listening to it and discovering for yourself, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think that, um, um, I, I, I was actually looking at notes and I'll, I'll get to why in a minute. I was looking at some old notes I'd written on this topic and I found something, um, uh, sentiment that I must have written several years, uh, probably like five or six years ago. Um, you know, that, um, ultimately record reviews, um, their purpose was to tell you what to buy. I mean, that was, mm-hmm. and I think that I can't remember this Twitter conversation or one adjacent no. to it. Um, yeah. Danarchy, Dan McCleary made that exact point. Yeah. yeah it's funny. And I, I was just laughing to see that I'd, I'd written that down, uh, um, five, five years ago. It's obviously in no way, a, a original sentiment, but that, um, you know, that was, they had that value in that, you know, at the end you need to be like, shit, am I going to spend 20 bucks on this or not? Um, mm-hmm. so I can listen to it again. And now, um, now it's all free. And I wrote, so it's about your time. And I mm-hmm. think that, um, um, that, that, that point was made again, that your time, um, to try something out or to listen to an album once when it's free is just really not as valuable as your 20 bucks because, um, you know, unless you're, uh, clocking out at work to spend (laughs) that time listening to the album, um, the stakes are different for rock criticism. So I I think, um, when it comes to how to do it, I mean, even if, you know, words like uh saturated or gossamer or serrated or fuzzy used to just have a different weight there used to be more um uh was writing on you know the critic's ability to choose the word that their audience would understand as referencing a specific um both uh, piece of music and or I'm sorry um, sound and uh, a specific reaction to that sound um, so that the critic could adequately communicate um, helpful information telling whether you should buy the album or not and now we have to pretend uh, <laughs> when we're doing this that that uh, those stakes are that high and frankly I think a lot of this comes from the fact that um, you know we it's just not as important 
um, what the critic is doing. Uh, there's, um, uh, there's a lot more that a critic can do, but it's not, um, this immediate, um, uh, arbiter of your, um, of, of what you will purchase and how you will spend your hard earned Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I totally agree. Um, that that particular function of music reviews is really, uh, just not needed anymore. I think that's why, um, you know, here we find ourselves in the business of, of orally, uh, reviewing albums. Um, you know, I hope that what we're trying to do, and I think the function that can still be performed is basically, um, uh, less of a review and more of, uh, a critique or an essay in the sense that one, uh, you know, would critique, uh, something one read for college or, uh, you know, viewed for a college course or something like that, namely to, uh, to be able to appreciate something better to understand why you do or don't love it um uh for its own sake because because doing that because uh reflecting on art and then uh you know communicating your thoughts to somebody else via one medium medium or another uh actually can enhance your appreciation of the art and enhance theirs and so um yeah that probably means we need fewer music reviews um but uh that's true. Uh, they're fun. We... <laughs> they're fun to. They're much more fun to produce than they are useful to consume. Yeah, exactly. So, well, and it's not. You know, criticism should be a conversation involving people. It's not just for yourself. What I'm talking about, but yeah, it's it's not. Uh, yeah, there should be less focus on uh, finally detailing exactly how good the twentieth most interesting album that came out this week is, and more. Uh, emphasis on um, just you know further understanding our uh, relationship to really good art uh, or really bad art sometimes Um, and that I think can still be uh, really enriching for all involved um, even if uh, even if it's (laughs) that that old paradigm is going away yeah, and I think that um, it's actually interesting to interesting is a word I use way too much on this podcast. Um, I think it's a common modern foul, you know, <laughs> error to do that. So don't um, too much. Your uh, comments provoked in me uh, the <laughs> uh, <laughs> a reaction um, uh, that you know perhaps we these. Um, uh, pieces of critical writing end up being more personal uh, because they're simply just more for the person writing it and for the much smaller and perhaps more intimately acquainted group of people who will be um, um, consuming it or in our case uh, listening to it. I mean, uh, I think that uh, a lot of the best discussions we've had about music have taken the form of miniature personal essays about how what a song meant to us at a time in our life. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not our main mode, but we've had several episodes that kind of revolved around that. Um, 
although we, for the benefit of our users, have clearly demarcated those <laughs> instances. Um, but it's, it's, I think in, in the end, hypocritical, um, actually, because that, I want to say to other people, I want to say to other writers that rock criticism is, it's an essay, but it's not a personal essay. You know, it should be about your reaction um, to, uh, it's not about you, but it's about your reaction. And, you know, the premise of good music writing is that it's your opinion and your emotions and your, um, uh, you know, analysis. And we don't need you to explain that with a long backstory with every review because we just assume that's what yeah. the reviewer is bringing to it. But then again, that when I come to talking about music, it's hard. And, you know, maybe it's just that, um, you know, actually, I, I will admit that my point is that doing that, um, bringing your own thoughts and expressing them in a way that's not just, um, uh, you know, masturbatory or um, mm -hmm. boring uh, is a really difficult thing to do. And with yeah. the ever increasing number of people writing about music, there's just a lot of people who have, you know, read the best of it and are trying to replicate it and instead writing, um, you know, live journal posts with the playlist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you're, you're right that there's, there's a, there's a, there's a balance to be struck where, you know, obviously, like you said, there's no way the reviewer cannot be uh, coming to any conclusion about the thing he's reviewing or, you know, explicating, let's say, um, that is not based on his own backgrounds and personal idiosyncrasies to some extent. But obviously the task is to uh, draw out those things that are um, universal or uh, otherwise, um, you know, uh, there, there's something about even there's always ways to tell your own story in ways that are interesting to other people because they show them something about themselves or the rest of the world, you know, other people in the world that aren't you or the listener mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, there's a, there's just a balance between generality and specificity that always has to be struck anytime you're communicating anything to some extent. Um, I, uh, so I agree. The, the the thing that d sorry the thing that separates the good reviewer from the bad or the good essayist from the bad is less are they doing a whole different kind of thing uh, with respect to uh, you know the interaction of their personal um, their personal background with the work being considered and more just whether they do it well um, you know that's a little bit reductive uh, obviously there must be some principles that apply but uh, uh, they're whatever you're doing, those elements are going to be there. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I, I do have to, um, um, kind of fight against, um, the, or I say, I want to fight against the other extreme where the album review, um, becomes a, uh, you know, indistinguishable from news, um, mm -hmm. where, um, you know, the reviews and news sections of Pitchfork are seen to be slowly merging and, and the <laughs> average review there is not, you know, 
a story of the reviewer breaking up with their girlfriend. It's um, a meandering look at the artist's career and it ties it to like current events and current. Yeah. Uh, and their current, like, you know, a lot of times the personal life and politics of the artist, which is of course, many times extremely relevant, but, um, uh, you know, songs aren't breaking news uh, to be there. The reason that breaking news doesn't matter. <laughs> um, True. Exactly. They're, they're supposed to be the unhappening, uh, <laughs> um, you know, lay lay your ambition down in front of the altar of the true cosmic purpose. Um, uh, <laughs> I in, like it to some degree. Um, yeah, no, totally. It's uh, we do all that other stuff so that we can get to things like really, really appreciating a work of art or, or being enriched by it. You know, right? Um, and uh, yeah, and and there's a certain place where i mean what's better saying a solo a guitar solo is like gossamer lighting lightning <laughs> or is it saying a guitar solo uh, makes you feel angry and desperate i mean which is more useful to the reader to hear um uh, uh, you know i might say uh uh without <laughs> sorry um, I might say without uh, laying down a rule that uh, ideally you would do both. You would describe it well and um, evoke something in the user or in the reader uh, that would um, help them appreciate it more. Um, so, so both really, but the point is uh, it's difficult to do that, you know, for sure. Um, can I read, can I, can I end by reading a few of my like favorite quotes from my favorite reviewer, Lester Bangs? Please that, do. Okay. Um, here he is. Um, he, there's an amazing eight page review that you can find online of his, uh, his review of fear of music. Uh, one of my favorite album reviews of all time. Um, but he, here's just some excerpts. Uh, fear of music might as well have been called fear of everything. Show me, show me an item extant in world, in the world we share, sentient or otherwise, and I'll show you a scientifically uh, gaffro schematized list of reasons with accompanying hypothetical scenarios like high school driver Ed class flicks on all the ways that said item might be considered risk incurring, if not downright predatory, by its very proximity. <laughs> Everybody knows that if you can't get your breakfast crunch to pop up from the toaster and go spelunking for them. Uh, with a knife, you'll get a new uh, haircut to the tune of several thousand possibly lethal votes, uh, volts. <laughs> um, this is him describing, you know, David Byrne's general sensibility on the album. Yeah. And uh, it ends, the ending paragraph is great. It's the, the closer you get to whatever it is you're terrified of, the more it and the dread of it begin to seem like old friends. Ergo, you become progressively less terrified. As a second dark ages seems to loom over us david Byrne strolls right down its maw placid and bemused humming little tunes to himself sometimes i think fear of music is one of the best comedy albums i've ever heard which doesn't <laughs> mean he makes you forget the fear is real he just reminds you that it's something you're gonna going to have to live with so you might as well get a kick out of it while you can yeah so that's really good yeah that's that's a good explication of the themes of that album that sort of evokes them in you in a different way and the you might say that the sort of dialectic between those two ways of experiencing that uh, helps inform and enrich the experience 
Yes, and it's totally unique to this album. You know, it's just you're not going to see those words in any <laughs> any sort of way used to describe even another album by the Talking Heads. Um, yeah, it's it's unique to this. Um, Does he use the word syrupy in the review? Uh, he might. Um, it's a long <laughs> review. Um, here he is talking about the Stooges. Uh, the Stooges music is like that. It comes out of an illiterate chaos, gradually taking shape as a uniquely personal style, uh, emerges from a tradition of American music that runs from the woolly rags of backwoods string bands up to the magic promise eternally made and occasionally fulfilled by rock, colon, that a band can start out bone primitive, untutored and uncertain and evolve into a powerful and eloquent ensemble. Uh, it's happening again and again, the Beatles, Kinks, Velvets, etc. But the Stooges are probably the first name group to actually form before they even knew how to play. <laughs> nice. Which is good. That's just good. And uh, finally, my last one, I can read this and I'm sure I will do this. Is, is this review of a Barry White album mm. um, called Just Another Way to Say I Love You. Uh, um uh, Barry, um, Barry has mouthed love. So the word quote unquote love so many different ways. You'd think the man would be hard pressed by now to come up with a new one, but he succeeded. Uh, his technique slide ever so gently like a palm going down a shoulder to a tit in a movie house <laughs> <laughs> from simple declarations of undying devotion into the realm of prurient interest and ultimately to outright hop dripping kuzadelic buttered soul <laughs> or anyway it happens on love serenade part one starting out as a typically tropical berry white instrumental deck the big fella trots out his tonsils and slides them up some truly t- titillational stuff quote take it off baby take it all off i want you the way you came into the world i don't want to feel no clothes i don't want to <laughs> see no panties take off that brasserie dear everybody's gone we're gonna take the receiver off the phone because baby you and me heh, this night we're gonna get it on end quote <laughs> Jesus, is this ever volatile stuff? If you look at it one way, just reading these words cold, it could be interpreted as a rape scene. Mm-hmm. Listening to various unctuous poos ooze voice, it is conceivably it is conceivable that this man is dangerous. At any rate, there's absolutely no question that he's going to get what he he's after. End of review. Excellent. It's so good. <laughs> so so good. Yeah, I mean, so. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think we've discovered that part of the secret here is just being a really good writer. Yes, uh, I think that might be actually the secret and probably the only <laughs> one that matters. Which, I mean, again, that just leads to the question of what is a really good writer? But, right. I mean, clearly the guy could write about a lot of things really well and not yeah. just music. And Right, and he can justify making an essay as personal or universal as he wants through yeah. the use of good writing. His point about the <laughs> lyrics sounding like a rape scene is one that occurred to me one time when I was l- listening to Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour. Uh, very <laughs> disturbing song if you read it the wrong way. Uh, to the point that I think you could really you could really make a sensation if you actually uh, uh, had a movie scene that did that. But um, <laughs> don't take that to be an endorsement of such uh, uh, tawdry tactics in art. Anyway. Um, I will not. <laughs> uh yeah do you have any final thoughts joe on reviews and such 
Um, I, I do not. I think it's only that I, uh, my final thought is that, um, I, I can't go beyond the fact that we could probably go back and forth on, um, what there's no particular style for a great piece of criticism other than awesome writing. Um, and you should continue to look for it. Yes. Um, totally. Don't, don't settle. I, I look forward to the reviews of this podcast where they refer to us as having a kaleidoscopic uh, uh, <laughs> logic to our uh, to our arguments. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. A throbbing, throbbing uh, disagreement. Anyway, um, <laughs> thank you everybody for listening to our syrupy thoughts and uh please uh follow us on twitter at savages pod you can check us out on our website savages pod.com now updated now updated um and then uh we're also on soundcloud itunes um oh email us savages pod at gmail.com and uh, uh we look forward to hearing anything from anybody also please rate review and subscribe on itunes which is a great way to rocket us up the charts of uh music podcasts um so uh do it now so you can say you were there first with the beast uh Uh, we're also available to dj parties uh if you you want your friends to hear awesome music that they've uh never heard before and never hear again we mm -hmm. will do that yeah if you want your friends to uh feel united in their hatred of these dumbass hipsters who played them a bunch of backpack rap then <laughs> or played them i am one 20 times in a <laughs> row <laughs> awesome um good night joe good night paul